Amen. Well, good morning. My name is John Allen, and uh, welcome to Risen Church. Um, so I love the song lyrics that we just sang. I love them. That's the first time many of you may have even heard that song. Um, but if, in case you didn't realize this, the name of that song is Jesus! Exclamation point. That is the name of the song. I love the name of that song. Jesus, exclamation point. Your name above all names. All things of this earth belong to you. That is a reality that sometimes we can lose sight of in this world, right? Forever you will reign. Highly exalted is the name of Jesus Christ. Heaven and earth declare all praise to Jesus, exclamation point. Right? So this is the anthem of creation that strikes right at the heart of all that we were designed for. In fact, when you lose sight of the reality that everything in this worth in this worth, everything in this world that is also known as Earth <laughs> finds its worth in Jesus Christ. Like we were designed to declare that all things in this earth belong to Jesus. This is everything. This is why our church is a gospel-centered church. This is why we are all about Jesus. Everything we do, that's it. Jesus, with an exclamation point, right? And so Jesus is the exclamation point. He's the author of all creation and all things on earth belong to him. He was the word at the beginning and he will have the final word at the end and it will come with an exclamation point, right? And so this morning, we're going to continue in our series through the book of Revelation called Victory Unveiled. And what we've seen in Revelation is just that, that when you pull back the physical veil, what you see is that he is the ultimate Lord and King of all creation. So no matter what you're doing, it's not just that he's Lord of all creation when you're in church. It's not just that he's Lord of all creation when you're singing these songs. That's when the physical veil gets pulled back and you're able to see what is actually true about the world. When you come together and we read the scriptures, we gather around this gospel of grace, and you're like, oh yeah, he is king, but then you go off to your day-in, day-out job, it's not like he's any less king then. In fact, everyone around you, whether you're at a, uh, a, a sports game, whether you are uh, sitting around the TV watching something, or you're at a concert, or whether you're just at work in the drudgery of life, he's still king. And everything around you is actually in full-fledged worship. The question is, what are they worshiping? Right? That's the ultimate question. So we've come to the end of chapter 16 in the book of Revelation, which is kind of like God's final exclamation point drawn right on the face of all creation. Like, boom! And it comes with the name of Jesus. See, last week, this is, what we're going to talk about this morning is the return of Christ to the earth in its full, utter, glorious exclamation. Last week, we took a little break from this series to hear uh, from a, a few of our uh, godly fathers for Father's Day, um, and it was great. I enjoyed it. Amen. I hope some of you got a little something out of that. Um, I loved it, uh, but we're gonna, I'm going to quickly recap uh, what we're diving back into this morning in the, our series on Revelation. Um, so this is sort of a reminder uh, for those of you that have been walking through this with us, and it's, it's also going to be uh, helping those of you that have not been, and maybe this is your first time, get caught up with us, okay? So sit tight. This might be a little bit like a, a drinking from a fire hydrant, but just if you get some of it, it's totally worth it. So um, this is the book of Revelation. It is not just a book, but it's actually a letter that the Apostle John wrote to the early churches of the first century during an extreme time of political upheaval and persecution. And this is no ordinary letter, though. Like, this is the prophetic account of a very real supernatural experience that the Apostle John had 2,000 years ago. And through this letter and the Holy Spirit, we're invited to experience this very relevant and very real revelation for ourselves today. And so it's really important that you lean in. This is not, if you have not been with us before, then uh, welcome and also know this, this is not one of those sermons that you just check out and watch the pelicans fly by. Right? you got to lean in. It's going to take a spiritual tenacity that is available to you in Christ, but you're going to have to lean in because there's a lot going on. 
okay? And it's all really good. And by God's providence, he has strategically positioned and brought you here to drink deeply from this reality. Amen? So as we lean into this, we're going to see John himself in this, when he received this letter or this uh, vision, he's taken up into the spirit as God pulls back the physical veil and reveals who's actually in control of eternity and all that's happening around them then in the first century and us now in the 21st century. And so this is a letter that's designed to encourage the church in difficult circumstances and to show them that Christ has the ultimate victory, no matter what it might seem like in the world around them then or in the world around us today. It's the reminder that if you are in Christ, that you have been rescued, redeemed, equipped, empowered, and commissioned to bring salvation to those drowning in the sinful and chaotic world that you are immersed in. And it's important to remember that this letter has a specific context. It's written to a specific people at a specific time with a specific purpose, which means it has a specific meaning. And the only way to understand that meaning is to understand its context. In other words, this is not just a letter that was given to the first century just for the sake of passing it on to a generation thousands of years later that would be around uh, just before Jesus returns to the earth, right? This isn't something that, that God uh, gave to the early church to put in a time capsule and be like, just put it on the shelf and you know, sit back for a couple millennia, and then it'll be relevant. That's not at all what's going on here. This letter was written to them in the first century, and its relevance to us now is actually only applied through the lens of how relevant it was for them then. So we can't make it mean something to us now that it couldn't have meant to them then. Amen? So when we realize how directly applicable and relevant it was for them then, then we're also going to treasure this vision for us today. So the thing about Revelation that you need to understand, especially for this uh, passage today, is that its structure is recursive, okay? And that means that, in other words, like the book of Genesis or uh, the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the accounts of Jesus' life, and the letters even in the New Testament, like um, uh, Ephesians or Galatians and um, Colossians, all of those letters that were written to those early churches of the day all, most of the books of the Bible are linear in their progression of events, thoughts, and themes, right? It's like they're like chronological in the way that they're written. However, Revelation circles back on its events and major themes over and over and over again. And it develops those events and themes from different angles and different perspectives so you get a more thorough understanding, even as though you are invited in to experience these things in a spiritual way for yourself as you're reading through it. So when we realize this, it's really helpful. to real, We see that these visions are used to expand and expound upon particular issues and events of both the past, the present, and the future. And so we're just over halfway through this letter, and we've already seen the end of the world and Christ's return to the earth twice at the end of what was called the seal judgments. There were seven seal judgments that we read early on, and then there's another series of seven judgments called the trumpet judgments, and they are all depicting the same amount of time. And so we're seeing a couple of weeks ago, we kicked off chapter 16, and it was another one of those recursive cycles, or the theological word is recapitulation, okay? So just think recap. That's what that means, essentially. So it's a recapitulation of the time frame between Christ's first coming and his second coming. This is known as the inner advent period. This is the period in which we now live. That's the account that's being given in these passages of scripture. That means that it is extremely relevant for those who live in the inner advent period. That's you. Got it? So we saw this Earlier, in again, the seven seals that were opened, that was the first series of seven judgments that we saw that depict the inner advent period. And then we saw it again with the seven trumpets that were blown. And then in chapter 16, it presents that same time frame through another series of seven judgments in the seven bowls that are poured out. 
And they all describe different aspects and increasing levels of God's judgment that take place during the same time period. So they reveal the common themes of history during this inter-advent period and describe the struggles and the troubles that plague the world with corruption, death, famine, poverty, disease, pollution, and demonic torment. It doesn't take a genius to look around at the world that we live in today and realize all of those things are in full throttle application today. And so God is the one, though, who is unleashing these judgments. That's what we see in Scripture, in Revelation, that God is the one who unleashes these judgments upon every sphere of creation that's been affected by human sin. Remember, humanity was originally given dominion over creation to take care of it. That's going to be really important for us to understand for the passage this morning. So each judgment exposes our failure because we tried to rule in God's place rather than by his authority. And so when these judgments take place, they're still a part of the goodness of God exposing that things are not as they should be. And he's righteous in this exposing. In fact, it's a part of his mercy so that we would recognize that things aren't as they should be and return and repent to him and the grace that's offered through Christ Jesus. Because each judgment exposes our failure because we tried to rule in God's place rather than by his authority. And so each of these judgments reveal the true nature of this fallen world, like handwriting on the wall of creation, declaring that things aren't as they should be. So Revelation is a wake-up call given to the church. It's saying to you to, the, the, who have been encouraged uh, by the grace of God to awaken to this new life and look at this world through the gospel glasses that's been given to you by the Holy Spirit to interpret the writing that's on the wall for the rest of all creation. So that when someone dies or when we see pollution or when we see extremely chaotic things happen in this world, it points us to the Redeemer of all things. And it makes us realize this world is sick and it needs a doctor. And if you remember, Jesus himself said, I didn't come for the healthy, I came for the sick. The implication there is, you're all sick. The only ones who are going to receive me are the ones that realize it. Does that make sense? So each of these judgments reveal the true nature of this fallen world and Revelation is this wake-up call. And so it unveils the reality that the only thing that's keeping Jesus from coming back in full glory to eradicate wickedness and inaugurate uh, the kingdom of heaven upon the earth is, again, his mercy towards those who would still repent and receive his grace. But it also reveals, especially in the seven bowls of chapter 16, that this world will not last forever and time is getting shorter and shorter. And so this morning, we're going to look at the seventh bowl of God's judgment, which unveils the final judgment of the earth with the return of Jesus Christ. And so again, we've already seen this twice. The next few chapters that will go into even greater depth regarding what uh, we're presented with this morning. So as we go forward, we're going to see um, in, in many ways uh, how this seventh bowl is like an introduction to the rest of the letter, to what we're going to see. Like, it's almost as though uh, what's poured out in the seventh bowl spills over into the rest of the book of Revelation, unveiling the depth of the implications of Christ's return for both the wicked and the righteous. So a little precursor there for where we're headed. But again, what's being presented here is the ultimate judgment on creation that comes with the very presence of God in his full, full unmitigated, unadulterated glory. That's what we're going to get, and that's what we're seeing. So this is, remember, this is a call to hope and courage for God's people in the midst of difficulty, and it's a reminder of who is actually the king and who is actually the one who holds victory in all that we go or are dealing with now and today. So it's a reminder that he's good, that he is the one whose glory we should seek, and not our own opinions and not our own stuff, but his, right? And so, turn with me. There we go. There's your recap. You guys caught up? You ready? Some of you are like, that's the recap? Um, yeah. So, uh, turn with me to Revelation 16, verse 17 through 21. We're going to read through this, and then we're going to drop back and walk through it together. I'm going to point out four things that will happen when King Jesus returns. 
And so then we're going to close with some practical application as a result. So um, here's what I want you to get this morning. The main point comes straight out of the Westminster Catechism. Catechism means teaching. Um, and so it, it comes straight out of the Westminster Catechism and uh, 1 Corinthians 10, 31. So who can tell me the chief end of all humanity? What is the chief end of man? Who knows it? Anybody? This is a literal thing. What is the chief end of man? Shane, you cannot answer. <laughs> Who knows it? Come on, come on, don't be bashful. Yeah, to glorify God and enjoy him forever. Right? People are like, what's the secret to life? What's the point of this life? You ever heard that? It's not a great cup of coffee. Right? This is a country song. I don't know. <laughs> but it's to glorify God and enjoy, and enjoy him forever. Unless you drink that cup of coffee and you're like, man, praise God. Now you've entered into your purpose. How cool is that? That is the point. Glorify God and enjoy him forever. So that's the main point that we're going to look at. That is, if you only get one thing from this sermon, that's what I want you to get. Glorify God and enjoy him forever. 1 Corinthians 10 verse 31 says this. So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. So as we look at the contents of the seventh bowl judgment and the end of this world as we know it, we're also going to see what that end has in store for those whose chief end is their own glory. Right? So you have two different perspectives or uh, you have two different people juxtaposed against one another in this, right? You have those who seek the glory of the Lord to enjoy him, and there are those who seek their own glory to enjoy themselves. And so, spoiler alert, the chief end of those who seek to glorify themselves is not joy. Revelation 16. Verse 17 through 21. Let's read through it, and then we'll drop back. So, the seventh angel poured out his bowl into the air, and a loud voice came out of the temple from the throne, saying, It is done. And there were flashes of lightning, rumblings, peals of thunder, and a great earthquake, such as there had never been since man was on the earth. So great was that earthquake. The great city was split into three parts, and the cities of the nations fell, and God remembered Babylon the great to make her drain the cup of the wine of the fury of his wrath. And every island fled away, and no mountains were to be found, and great hailstones, about 100 pounds each, fell from heaven on people. And they cursed God for the plague of the hail, because the plague was so severe." Welcome to church. Here we go. <laughs> All right. So if you've been going through this series with us for the past few months um, or more, <laughs> then you're probably already noticing things that sound very familiar in this passage. And if you don't recognize them, then that's okay. I'm going to point them out. So Remember, when this letter was originally read to the early churches, it would have been read all at one time. Like, it would have come to the church at Ephesus, um, and they would have taken it and opened it up, and they would have all, all the Christians in the city would have gathered around, and he would have read the whole thing, start to finish, in one go. And all of the images and all of the metaphors and all the visuals would have been directly applicable to them, so they would have caught a lot of it immediately. Does that make sense? And also, it, things would have stuck with them. So repetitive phrases and images that are over and over again, they would have stuck out because it was all in one reading. And that's intentional. So as we walk through these verses, I'm going to point these out to you because they're really important to catch because they're emphasizing very intentional images. So verse 17, it says this, the seventh angel poured out his bowl into the air and a loud voice came out of the temple from the throne saying, it is done. So the first thing that I want to point out that's going to happen here is that this is a total realization of God's redemptive plan. Somebody say, it is finished. 
So God's redemptive plan is fully realized and it is finished. Now remember, all of this points back to chapter five when John tells us that he's weeping bitterly because nobody was worthy to open the scroll of God's redemptive plan for all creation. Like when you, this whole thing, this whole series, those series of recapitulations, those recursive judgments, that was all kicked off with the opening of this scroll. And in the beginning in chapter 5, John sees this scroll and no one could open it. And he has this deep sense of despair and it's palpable and it's intentional as you read it. It's designed to hit you with the thought of creation languishing in its current state of injustice and darkness forever. Way back in chapter 5, the fact that this redemptive scroll could not be opened because no one was worthy to do it is supposed to, it's like a culmination of all the, the despair and, and hopelessness that anyone experiences in this world finds its expression in the way that John bitterly weeps because no one was worthy to open that scroll. And you're supposed to feel it. In fact, this is the only section of Revelation that is actually a doom and gloom passage. The only place. Because somehow John knew that the contents of that scroll would bring about the redemption of all creation. And yet, because no one was worthy to break the seals and open the scrolls, he weeps bitterly. And his weeping again is the ultimate expression of all the darkness and despair in this fallen world. And there's like a pause, and it lets you feel the weight of it. Right? But then we see Jesus, the Lamb of God and the Lion of Judah who conquered the grave. He was David's root and the Lamb of God who died to ransom the slave, as the song goes. He alone was worthy to break the seals and open the scroll and kick off God's redemptive work in history. And that's exactly what he did. And the first of the three recursive series of seven judgments was unleashed in the seal judgments. In other words, all of what we're seeing and have seen in this, all of it is great and amazing and filled with hope and courage. And because it's amazing and it's good, even the plagues, because they are just and they are designed to turn people to God. And for those who wouldn't, they are designed to give them what they deserve which is what we all deserve but for the grace of God. These are the visions of hope and encouragement for the people of God. This is our victory that's unveiled in the revelation of Jesus Christ. And so when the aggregate fury of righteous wrath has been poured out in full strength, which is what we see here in the seventh bowl, then and only then will it be finished. Somebody say, it is finished. Now that should sound familiar to you. We've called attention to this. Because even as the seven bowls kicked off, they said, when they're done, it is finished. It's repetitive with this. You hear this a lot. And the reason it does is because it's pointing to what Jesus said on the cross when he drank the cup of God's wrath dry so that we might drink from his grace. And at the finished, say finished, at the finished work of Jesus Christ on the cross, his wrath is no longer a thing for those who place their faith and their hope in Christ alone. See, the only reason any of us can read this passage with hope is if your hope is in the finished work of Christ Jesus on the cross, then when this comes and his unmitigated, unadulterated glory comes, it won't come with wrath. It'll come in glory. And, it, and his glory is wrath to those who stand under it. That's the thing. But for those who, who's, who are washed in the blood of Jesus, he's their savior and their king. This is the gospel. This is why this matters so much. That God became a man. He lived the life we couldn't live. He died the death that we deserved to die. And that his glory was so immense. The son of God's life was pure perfection and purity and holiness and it was so sufficient and it was so valuable that it was enough to cover the debt that we owed to justice. 
The penalty was paid and restitution was made in Christ. It was enough because he is enough and it was finished. And now it is finished. Say, it is finished. And because it is was finished, we know that his grace is sufficient for us, for by his wounds we are healed. Not only are we healed, but we are restored and we're grafted into new life through his resurrection, not by anything that we could do, but because of what he has done on our behalf and by placing our faith and our hope in the king, in the savior, then now we are sons and daughters. That's, we're welcomed into this father-son relationship with God Almighty. That's what's happening because he conquered death in the grave and he paved the way to eternal life with God the Father that starts now, not just one day when we die, but it starts now through the indwelling of his spirit and the relationship, that father-son relationship. That's why when we talk about this stuff, man, the thing I want most for you, the thing that Paul writes about and he wants most of you, most for you, is to understand your daughterhood and your sonship in Christ, to know the height, depth, length, width, and breadth of the love of God, the Father. That is Christianity, and that is what we have in Christ Jesus, and that's what he paid for at the cross, and that's what he invites us into, and he doesn't just invite you into sonship and daughterhood. He invites you to steward the kingdom and cultivate the garden with the Father. I love this stuff. This is the victory that comes spiritually for those who place their hope in Christ alone. But here on this day, on, or on that day that's being revealed here in um, the seventh bowl, that spiritual reality will manifest physically, right? So here we have it in part. Here we walk by faith, but not by sight. Here now, it's already, but not yet. But then his glory will come in its unmitigated, unadulterated glory. And it will be revealed physically and spiritually. And for those who've not received grace and live for their own glory, his unmitigated presence will be their undoing. But for those who long for his glory and long for his return and desire to see the king lifted high, when he is lifted high, it's our greatest hope. It's all that you ever dreamed of. It's more than you could have ever asked, thought, or imagined. This is the exclamation point. You see, for the Christian, the victory's already been won, and yet in this world, we still live in what's called the already but not yet. The victory's been won spiritually, but we still live in a fallen world riddled with spiritual warfare as the light breaks into the dark through the children of light who've been commissioned to bring this gospel of grace to a fallen and jacked up world. Not because you're great, not because you're awesome or anything you've done, but because of what's been done on your behalf at the cross. This is Christianity. We live behind enemy lines as ambassadors of the kingdom of heaven who carry this gospel of grace into a world that's ruled by Satan and, as Ephesians 6 put it, the spiritual forces of evil and the principalities of darkness. The way the world views these things, Ephesians 2, verse 1 through 6, put it like this, and you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air. Notice that. That's important. That the prince of the power of the air is a reference to Satan. The spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. This is a reference to the spiritual authority that you hold even now as you walk out the light in the midst of the dark. This is why the authority in the name of, that's why the name of Jesus holds so much authority. In this battle. It's not the name of John Allen, God forbid. It's the name of Jesus Christ, which is where my true identity lies and ours as a church. So the state of the current world that we live in is one of impending judgment. 
the prince of the power of the air, is a reference again to Satan. He is the puppet master of all who have not been set free by the grace of God in Jesus Christ, whose minds and worldviews have been liberated by the Spirit of God, right? For the one who the Son sets free is free indeed. Free indeed. And so this is why the final bowl is poured out into the air. That seems random, isn't it? It's not just like an atmospheric like spray, right? It's, there's a reason why this final bowl is poured out into the air. It's because Satan is the power of the air and it's been poured out unmitigated upon him and his rule and reign. So the king has returned, and to quote from the, those in the sixth seal of Revelation 6, chapter, uh, verse 16, back before, they say, hide us from the face of him who is seated on the throne and from the wrath of the lamb. For the great day of their wrath has come, and who can stand? So the answer, of course, to who can stand is those who have been washed by the blood of the lamb, which we saw in chapter 7 right after that. And then Ephesians 2, 8 through 9, it goes on to explain, for by grace you've been saved through faith. And this is not of your own doing. It's the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are all deserving of this, but for the grace of God. So the reference to the voice, again, here, from the temple and the throne of God is a direct reference to the unadulterated presence and glory of the word of God coming to the earth in royal power. That's what we're seeing. The king has returned, his kingdom is established, and it is finished. Say, it is finished. Exclamation point. So again, it echoes the seventh trumpet judgment of Revelation eleven fifteen. I know I'm all over the map here, but I'm connecting dots because that's what a Revelation does with an exclamation point. And this is what it said in the seventh trumpet. Remember, that's that second series of judgments that we saw, those recursive things that we're circling back to and seeing in different depths and perspectives. Seventh trumpet judgment in Revelation eleven fifteen 15 said this, the seventh angel blew his trumpet and there were loud voices in heaven saying, the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ and he shall reign forever and ever. Which again leads to the second thing that happens on this great day of the Lord, which is an eternal power shift. That's the second thing that takes place here. Verse 18. So the second thing, there will be an eternal power shift upon the earth. So verse 18. And there were flashes of lightning, rumblings, peals of thunder, and a great earthquake such as there had never been since man was on the earth. So great was that earthquake. So is this a picture of like a crazy thunderstorm and like earthquakes everywhere? Maybe. I don't know. Again, this language is all over both the Old Testament and Revelation, and it's always used to depict a massive shift in power and authority. That's important. We saw this in the seventh seal of Revelation 8, 5, right? Verse 5, then the angel took the censer and filled it with fire from the altar and threw it on the earth, and there were peals of thunder, rumblings, flashes of lightning, and an earthquake. And then again, the seventh trumpet of Revelation eleven nineteen says this, then God's temple in heaven was opened. There's that temple that is a picture of the manifest presence of God, and the ark of his covenant was seen within his temple. Again, that's the presence of God. It's opened. There were flashes of lightning, rumblings, peals of thunder, an earthquake, and heavy hail. So we even get a little more detail in it. That's that second judgment or series of judgments. And it's almost as though we're seeing the same thing over and over again from a different angle and perspective or something, right? So it's imagery that's pulled from the Old Testament that points to the downfall and judgment of principalities, kingdoms, worldviews, and lofty ideas that set themselves up against and oppose the rule and reign of King Jesus and the kingdom of heaven. This is the world we live in, right? Think about that. Like this is the presence of God revealing himself in sheer glory and all opposition disintegrates and flees. All of those lofty thoughts and perspectives that lift themselves up against the glory of God disintegrate. So this isn't just a physically literal earthquake and lightning storm. 
Like, there may well be a physical earthquake and lightning storms and all of that. Like, that may manifest physically. But if it does, they will be physical manifestations of the underlying shift and authority that's happening. Like, we saw it in the, uh, when Jesus died on the cross. Like, that, there was, when he died on the cross, you, know, you guys remember what happened? Earthquake. Like, that's random. Why did that happen? It was a picture of the physical manifestation of a major power shift in authority. Okay? And so the main point here is that there will be a major power shift in authority and rule and reign such as there has never been before. Like, there, are, there, there have throughout history, as kingdoms fall and rise, those power shifts. This is saying this is the ultimate one. It started at the cross. It's fulfilled at his return. I should say it started at the cross. It started at his incarnation. It'll be fulfilled at his return. Because this is ultimately a judgment upon all all sinful opposition in the hearts of humanity. Because a physical earthquake can't be a judgment upon sinful principles and worldviews in and of itself. Unless it's a symbol pointing to the greater foundation shift of spiritual and physical authority and power. You guys see that? Like a physical earthquake isn't a judgment on somebody's heart. This is about hearts and minds. And so what's being revealed here is that, again, this is a spiritual and physical authority and power shift. And so that's what's being revealed as the prince of the air is cast down. And so during his earthly ministry, we got a precursor precursor of this when Jesus sent his disciples out to preach the good news of the kingdom of God to people. And and when his disciples come back, they are pumped. Do you guys remember this? It's in Luke 10. They're pumped up. And verse 17, Luke 10, verse 17, it, it, it says the 72 disciples, they return with joy. And they're saying, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name, which had never happened before. You ain't going to see that in the Old Testament. They're like, even the demons are subject to us, to, to us in your name. And he said to them, I saw Satan fall like lightning. So the power shift on earth began with the coming of King Jesus. He broke into this world at his first coming, and he told them, again, in Luke 10, verse 19, right after this, he says, Behold, I have given you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy, and nothing shall hurt you. Now, he's not talking about playing with rattlesnakes here, right? Like, that's foolishness. It's not what he's saying. He's talking about the authority that we've been given over the current rulers and principalities of this fallen world. He's talking about spiritual warfare, Now, if you see physical manifestations of that, but the underlying root is what you have in Christ Jesus, the authority that was given to you because of him and what he has done at the cross and resurrection. This is our great commission, remember? All authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Therefore, I say to you, go and make disciples in that authority, in that power to break those strongholds. This is the war that we wage in Jesus' name behind enemy lines, liberating the captives and bringing sight to the blind by making disciples who make disciples of King Jesus, exclamation point. What we're seeing here is the final shift in all authority coming to bear upon the earth as the king of heaven and earth physically returns to rule and reign. We are like the ambassadors that have been sent out ahead, the evangelists declaring the king's coming. And as we do, we carry the light of the kingdom with us into the dark. And so as this all takes place, and as he does, God's redemptive plan is realized, and there's an eternal power shift. And every stronghold of opposition against Jesus as king will disintegrate. And that's the third point. Every stronghold of opposition against Jesus as king will disintegrate. And so, verse 19, let's look at it. The great city was split into three parts, and the cities of the nations fell, and God remembered Babylon the great to make her drain the cup of the wine of the fury of his wrath. So this great city 
which we'll get into in much more detail in the coming weeks. This great city is not just a reference to Jerusalem or Rome or New York City or Virginia Beach. It's the trans-historical Babylon the Great, which is like the collective depiction of all the cities of fallen sinful humanity that oppose Christ and his kingdom throughout the generations. That's what we're seeing here. This great city is a reference to all socioeconomic, political, religious, and philosophical worldviews, principalities, and authorities that position themselves against the rule and reign of Jesus Christ and his kingdom. This is the great city that declares its own vainglory and greatness and has throughout the generations. This great city is founded upon the vain efforts to dismiss God's glory for self-centered self-worship and self-importance. And it permeates society. It saturates worldviews. This is the world's answer to all of our issues, and it is the, it's also the root of them all. It's the empire state of mind like the Tower of Babel attempting to attain greatness apart from God by its own strength. To be like God in the place of God rather than giving glory to God, right? I think these streets will make you feel brand new. Big lights will inspire you. Let's hear it for New York, New York, New York. There's nothing we can't do. Jay-Z doesn't understand. Unfortunately, one day he will, and I pray that someone reveals this glorious gospel of grace before he meets the king of glory face to face. That was a quote to a rap by Jay-Z, by the way, if some of you guys missed that. (laughs) Well, we'll see this in the coming chapters that this great city is directly juxtaposed with the city of God or the kingdom of heaven. That that's what's going to be established upon the earth at Christ's return. We are going to see two cities juxtaposed against each other, the city of God and the great city of Babylon that thinks it's great, but in reality it's headed for destruction. And we're going to see the horror of Babylon juxtaposed with the bride of Christ. And we are all this prostitute. We are all this whore of Babylon, but for the grace of God. And for those who are in Christ Jesus, our robes have been washed white with the blood of the lamb and presented to him on that great day at a marriage feast. We're going to get there. Here we go. Verse 20. And every island fled away and no mountains were to be found. This sounds a lot like what we saw in the sixth seal in chapter 6 of Revelation. Again, verse 14, the sky vanished like a scroll that is being rolled up, and every mountain and island was removed from its place. So again, this may manifest literally, but even then, it's going to be a manifestation of the spiritual realities that are taking place, which is that mountains are symbolic throughout scripture of obstacles that stand between God and his people. We talked about this a few weeks ago, right? Like this is, that they may be uh, evil forces or even kingdoms. Remember the little stepladder that I had here? If you weren't here, I had a little stepladder that said mountain on it, you know? And it was just like, that's in between me and God. Be thrown into the sea. And that's what Jesus did at the cross. And so when we place our faith in him, that mountain is removed by faith in him. And that's what he's saying. Again, this may manifest literally, but even then it's going to be a manifestation of the spiritual reality that's taking place. These mountains will be removed. This is why when we place our faith in Christ, even if that faith is the size of a mustard seed, we can say to that mountain of separation between us and God, be thrown into the sea. And it'll be done for you. That's what it's saying. In this world, again, we face mountains And by faith in Christ, those mountains are removed spiritually. But when he returns on that great day of the Lord, all spiritual and physical obstacles between God and his people will flee from his presence like dark retreats from the light. For lovers of God and his glory, this is a good thing. But for lovers of themselves and their own glory, it's a really bad thing. And remember that those who love their own glory are going to hate 
his coming and hate his presence because God is about his own glory and it is the best thing for us, right? In fact, the people that get really upset about this stuff, the people that are just like, God seems really arrogant and prideful. Like he seems like he's just all about his own glory. Yeah, he is. And the reason you're upset about that is because you're all about your glory. And you weren't designed for that. You are against your created design, and that's that pride thing. Because in God being all about his glory, it's actually a characteristic of selflessness to invite you into experiencing it. That'll preach. That's like a whole other thing right there. When Jesus returns, though, all of the islands and the mountains will be removed. Remember, the islands in the Old Testament, you may not know this, but they're often translated as coastlands in the Old Testament. Um, That also these, These coastlands or islands, they often refer to godless or pagan nations and kingdoms. And so at his return, that's not gonna be a thing. They're gonna be gone. And so finally, the last thing that we see here is that Uh, Point four, the severity of God's justice will be in perfect proportion to the severity of human sin. So verse 21, and great hailstones, about 100 pounds each, fell, fell from heaven on people, and they cursed God for the plague of the hail because the plague was so severe. So again, I'm gonna point out, what we saw in the seventh trumpet of Revelation 11, and it's another, uh, this echoes all of that stuff, and it's another reminder of, the one, of one of the plagues on Egypt in the Old Testament, which was a great hailstorm, right? We've, we're seeing this uh, over and over again. So the difference here is that this hail isn't just a judgment upon one nation, because it's not just a judgment on Egypt, who was oppressing God's people and opposing God's people and standing against um, the king of glory, This is a a judgment upon the entire earth who is oppressing the people of God. So why, though, are these hailstones 100 pounds? Like, what's that about? Like, that's that's kind of a random metric, just kind of arbitrary metric to throw out there, right? Like, you're just kind of like, you're reading it, and it's just like, oh, and by the way, they were 100 pounds. Like, if I'm telling you a story about how I got caught out in the rain, and I'm like, and each raindrop weighed 100 pounds, you'd probably think that I was just saying, like, yeah, it's a really intense rainstorm. I got soaking wet, right? It weighed about 100 pounds, which that might actually be some of what's going on here. Like, it's kind of hyperbolic, trying to explain that it's really heavy, you know, which, of course, it will be. But there's also something more intentional going on here, and I don't want you to miss it. It's easy to miss. I've missed it for a long time. I've always been like, I feel like there's something about the 100-pound thing. I just don't get it. But the original readers, again, how would they have heard that? And what we realize is that the Roman talent represented about 100 pounds of silver. That's important. So the people reading this, for them, it would have evoked a lifetime of wages for the common worker of the day. 100 pounds of silver, one talent, 100 pounds. It literally represented a person's weight in wages raining down upon them in judgment. It would have reminded them of Romans 6.23, for the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. In other words, the severity of this judgment is in direct proportion to what is owed And it's what is owed to all of us but for the grace of God. Jesus himself used language like this to describe what the day of his return would be like in Matthew 25. It says this. He he said that, he, he literally says that that day would be like a man who entrusted his property to three servants and gave each of them a different amount of talents according to their ability. After a long time, the master returned to settle accounts, and two of the servants had stewarded the talents, the talents, the talents, the talents (laughs) that they were given, they stewarded them well and even multiplied them, right? 
So the master gives them talents according to their ability, and then he goes away for a while, and then he returns. And this is how Jesus says the day of his return will be. And the master's response to them both, those who stewarded the talents given to them by the master who represents God, his response to them is, well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enjoy, or sorry, enter into the joy of your master. But the third servant came forward and said, Master, I knew you to be a hard man, reaping where you did not sow and gathering where you scattered no seed. So I want you to see something here. I want you to see that his, this servant's bitterness is rooted in his own selfishness. It's really important that you get that. He accuses the master who represents God of reaping where he did not sow. In other words, he thinks it's all about him. He thinks that he himself is responsible for all that he has, that it all belongs to him, and therefore he should get the glory alone. And that God is trying to reap where he didn't sow. That he is or should be the master or God because he would be a better God or a better master than the master. This is the heart behind all sin. Let's read the rest of the parable that Jesus tells in Matthew 25, verse 25 through 30. This is what he says. He continues and says that as the servant makes that statement, Master, I knew you to be a hard man, reaping where you did not sow and gathering where you scattered no seed. So, verse 25, so I was afraid and I went and hid your talent in the ground. Here, you have what is yours. But his master answered him, his master answered him, you wicked and slothful servant. You knew that I reap where I have not sown and gather where I scattered no seed? Then you ought to have invested my money with the bankers, and at my coming I should have received what was my own with interest at least, right? Verse 28, so take the talent from him and give it to him who has the ten talents. For to everyone who has will more be given, and he will have an abundance. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. And cast, and he cast the worthless servant into the outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. So this is not about necessarily just financial stewardship. This is the servant. This is about way more. See, the servant's resentment of the master is what led to the distrust and outright rebellion. I want you to see that. I read a quote recently that said, if you look for offense, you will find it. A heart whose posture is one of constant defensiveness and suspicion will never find rest. Perpetually offended people live and a self-inflicted misery. That is the state of this person's heart, born of his own self-centeredness, born of his own desire for his own glory. That never ends well, never. As a result, he buried his God-given talent into that which is wasting away the things of the earth. His self-centered pride led to his worthless earthly investment. It led the servant to do exactly what Jesus told us not to do in Matthew 6, verse 19 through 21, where he said, Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moth and rust destroy, and where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal for where your treasure is there your heart will be also this is this picture of again that 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 where he's investing is a reflection of his heart and it's a judgment on his heart this servant sank the good gifts that God gave him into that which carries no eternal reward and it was the direct symptom of his heart and again isn't that the root of everything that's twisted in this world a desire for his own vanity and a rebellion against the one who says it's all about his glory and a greater purpose than your own? As the book of James put it, every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, 
So we were created to tend the garden of creation. Human flourishing happens when the good gifts given to us by God are stewarded for his glory. This is where our relationship with him thrives. This is where we live and breathe and love and operate in the joy of God. The breakdown happens when we subvert that and try to steal his glory for ourselves. This is bitterness and resentment and distrust that ensues. And humanity becomes worshipers of ourselves and then haters of God. Bitter glory thieves rather than joyful glory givers. That's the juxtaposition here. So this theme really gets fleshed out in the next few chapters. But ultimately what we're seeing here is that the glory thieves receive exactly what they're owed when Jesus returns to settle accounts. And the question then is, are you investing your time, your talent, your treasure into that which brings God glory? Like are you operating in the joy of the Father of Lights? Or does your life represent a striving for your own glory and a dismissal of the things of the kingdom of heaven as you strive for the things that make you feel and look and elevate your own kingdom and your own glory? This is the juxtaposition that's happening here. Between the things that God loves, that which holds an eternal reward and builds with heavenly interest. This is the constant battle that we all struggle with in this world of warfare. And the truth is that none of those other endeavors really satisfy. They might bring a temporary sense of pride. And when they fall, though, it's going to come with a deep sense of shame. The truth is that none of those endeavors really satisfy. None of those things of this world, the lust of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and the pride of life, they're all going to disappoint. They all leave you wanting like elusive shadows of temptation or waters that never quench but only leave you more and more thirsty. As Tim Keller put it, seek God first and you'll get satisfaction thrown in. Seek first satisfaction and you'll lose both. God and satisfaction. Or John Piper put it like this. God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in him. Or as St. Augustine put it, you have made us for yourself, O Lord, and our hearts are restless until they rest in you. And as Jesus put it, seek first the kingdom of heaven and his righteousness and all else will be added unto you. And as Psalm 37, 4 put it, delight yourself in the Lord and he will give you the desires of your heart. Because catch this, if you delight yourself in the Lord, you realize the desire of your heart is the delight of the Lord. Like you don't delight yourself in the Lord in order to get the things of this world. You realize that the things of this world are worthless without the delight of the Lord. This is what is being just articulated throughout all of this and being manifested at his return. When I, I want you to see that, that he is the desire of our hearts, that the joy of stewardship is the joy of being with, operating on mission with, and delighting in our heavenly Father who delights in us, not just as faithful servants, but as sons and daughters stewarding the inheritance. How cool is that? That's the invitation of Christianity. This is how we glorify God and enjoy him forever. That starts now, not just one day when we die. That God has strategically designed and gifted you for a unique, custom-made role in his great commission to tend and cultivate this garden. And he's going to come back and make that sucker flourish. He's not necessarily asking you to become a pastor or an overseas missionary, although for some of you, that might be the case. God bless it, let's go, right? But ultimately, his call is to all of us to do everything for the glory of God and to enjoy him in it. In whatever you're doing, as a doctor, a nurse, a lawyer, an entrepreneur, a salesman, a mechanic, a soldier, a mother or father, a son or daughter, a teammate or a friend, do all of it for his glory and for his kingdom and for his purpose and enjoy him in it all. Say, enjoy him. Stewarding and cultivating the time, the treasure, the talent that he's given you for his glory and entering into his joy in the process. 
There is nothing like standing and pouring yourself out, spending, and I'm talking spending your life for his kingdom and his glory and laying it at his feet and feeling his delight on it. Not to get salvation, but because you have it. That is what you're called to. This is the power of it all, to do all for the glory of God and entering into his joy in the process and then to know that one day that well done, my good and faithful servant, is awaiting you. But it doesn't await everyone. I would even say it doesn't even await all Christians. Because again, we don't attain our salvation this way. But we do attain deep, deep joy in through this sanctification process. I'm going to close here because I'm over again. I'm telling you, 11 o'clock is the extra anointed service. Charles Spurgeon once highlighted, highlighted how God distributes talents differently according to ability and how the goal isn't to be better than one another, but to simply be faithful with what God has entrusted to each one. And I love the way he put this, and I'm going to try and get through this without bawling my face off. Here we go. He's presenting what it will be like on that day when we stand before the Lord as believers. And he kicks it off with the way George Whitfield, an amazing man of God. If you don't know anything about George Whitfield, look him up. And this is how he presents it. He says, here comes Whitfield, the man who stood before 20,000 at a time to preach the gospel, who in England, Scotland, Ireland, and America has testified the truth of God and who could count his converts by thousands, even under one sermon. Here he comes, the man that endured persecution and scorn and yet was not moved, the man of whom the world was not worthy, who lived for his fellow men and died at the last for their cause. Stand by angels and admire while the master takes him by the hand and says, well done, well done, good and faithful servant. Enter thou into the joy of thy Lord. See how free grace honors the man whom it enabled to do valiantly. But hark, who is this that comes there? A poor, thin-looking creature that on earth was a consumptive, which is like a sickly person. There was a hectic flush now and then upon her cheek, and she lay there three long years upon her bed of sickness. Was she a princess's daughter? For it seems heaven is making much a stir about her. No, she was a poor girl that earned her living by her needle, and she worked herself to death, stitch, 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 from morning to night, and here she comes. She went prematurely to her grave, but she is coming like a shock of corn fully ripe into heaven. And her master says, well done, thou good and faithful servant. Thou hast been faithful in few things. I will make thee ruler over many things. Enter thou into the joy of thy Lord. And she takes her place by the side of Whitfield, Ask what she ever did, and you find out that she used to live in some back garret down, some dark alley in London. And there used to be another poor girl come to work with her. And that poor girl, when she first came to work with her, was a volatile creature. And this consumptive, sickly child told her about Christ. And they used, when she was well enough, to creep out of an evening to go to chapel or to church together. It was hard at first to get the other one to go, but she used to press her lovingly, and when the girl went wild a little, she never gave up her, on her. She used to say, oh, Jane, I wish you loved the Savior. And when Jane was not there, she used to pray for her, and when she was there, she prayed with her, and now and then she was stitching away, read, uh, or, or, or sorry, and now and then when she was stitching away, read a page out of the Bible to her, for poor Jane could not read. And with many tears, she tried to tell her about the Savior who loved her and gave, her, gave himself up for her. At last, after many a day of hard persuasion and many an hour of sad disappointment and many a night of sleepless, tearful prayer, at last she lived to see the girl profess her love to Christ. And she left her and took sick, and there she lay until she was taken to the hospital where she died. When she was in the hospital, she used to have a few tracts, and she used to give them to those who came to see her. She would try, if she could, to get the women to come round, and she would give them a tract. When she first went to the hospital, if she could creep out of bed, she used to get by the side of the ones who were dying, and the nurse used to let her do it, till at last she got too ill. And then she used to ask a poor woman on the other side of the ward, who was getting better and was going out, if she would come and read a chapter to her. 
Not that she wanted her to read it to her on her own account, but for her own sake, for she thought it might strike her heart while she was reading it. At last, this poor girl died and fell asleep in Jesus. And the poor consumptive needlewoman had said to her, well done. And what more could an archangel have said to her? She hath done what she could. See then the master's commendation and the last reward will be equal to all men who have used their talents well. Ah, if there be degrees in glory, they will not be distributed according to our talents, but according to our faithfulness in using them. May we glorify God and enjoy him forever. Let's pray. God, we thank you for your glory. We thank you for the opportunity to share and see and behold this amazing commission and your glory within it. God, I pray that you would fix our hearts and minds on you and that you would expose anything that's not of you, anything where we're seeking our own lives, our own agendas, or all that other stuff. God, I just pray that you would wash it away in your mercy and grace. Expose it to us as the sons and daughters that you've declared us to be, and that we would have the courage to come to you and say, Lord, help us, because we are made secure in Christ to walk this thing out. God, we love you. I thank you for these amazing people here who desire to seek you and your kingdom above all else. God, we love you. We present it all to you in worship. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.